Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 221, The Finest Buck. Just to remind you, I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. If you want to see the smorgasbord of delightful podcasts available, just hop along to agorapodcastnetwork.com and have a look around. I am supposed to be talking about the cannonball this week, but since I did that sort of last time, this time let me briefly tell you about the Tudor Summit run by Agora's very own Heather Tasco, It's an online hoolie of Tudor life with historians, bloggers, podcasters. Go to www.tudorsummit.com to find out more. This week and next, then, are sweep-up weeks. It's all about decks and sweeping, the sweeping of decks, sweeping of decks for action. Though actually, you clear decks for action, don't you? But you know what I mean, or you will do. Because at some point, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, at some point we will have to get to the man named after an instrument of bath hygiene, Martin Luther. I'm just giving you fair warning, you know, so that you can gird your mental loins and in fact gird whatever kind of loins you need to. I don't mean to be intentionally smutty, all I'm saying is get your girding in. Because I suspect there will be those of you who really don't want to do religion and the Reformation. It's my job over the next few weeks, months, years, decades, and quite possibly, with the judicious application of cryogenics, centuries, to convince you that this really is one of the most magnificent stories, stories in which we should wallow like hippos in a mud bath, or pigs in, well, like pigs. But to quote Aragon again, this is not that day. We heard recently about the field of the cloth of gold, Francis and Henry madly pratting about and pretending they liked each other, when really, they didn't. But let me repeat, however much Henry wanted to be Henry V, wanted to crush the French and demonstrate just how butch and manly he was, throughout 1520 and into 1521, Henry and Wolsey continued to stand by the Treaty of Universal Peace and tried to keep Charles and Francis in line with it as well. So Francis was told this in March 1521. 
The king will not fail to give aid and assistance to the French king against the emperor if he invade him. So must his grace be driven of necessity to assist the said emperor against the king's French invasion. While Charles was delivered of the message that Henry would be bound to give aid and assistance either to one party or the other. Oh dear. If only England had been able to wield a big enough stick to fill their continental brethren with fear. But of course they really couldn't. France and the Empire, they were the big boys. And they just could not help irritating each other. There were so many places where their realms rubbed up against each other, so many opportunities for conflict. By 1521, after just three years of universal peace, Francis and Charles were snarling and snapping and beating their chests all over again. This time it seems to be Francis that broke the peace first with a series of border incidents and with his ambitions in Navarre. Charles cried foul, the Pope joined in, and both, jubilantly, the Pope's skirts kicking around his knees in excitement, ran to Henry, arms in the air, yelling, please sir, please sir, he did it, he did it, he did it first. Wolsey and Henry proved disappointingly po-faced and tried to persuade the two of them to talk it through rather than rush straight for the divorce courts. There was one of those senseless conferences everyone really wants to be over, and soon it was. Ironically then, the Treaty of Universal Peace of course, rather than preserving the peace, now inexorably pulled England into war. It was always probably going to be the empire. Henry's instincts would remain anti-French throughout his life, whatever his more Frenchified minions might say. And anyway, France had indeed been the aggressor on this occasion. And so we have a rather magnificent conference in Bruges between Wolsey and Charles V. Now, just remember that Charles V is the most powerful man in Europe, from a line of royal blood going back Lord knows how long. Wolsey, on the other hand, was the son of a butcher. Obviously, these days, such things matter less and I would be delighted to slap Queenie on the back affectionately, call her the old trout. But back then, Wolsey was expected to act with due deference. Into Bruges he came. Late. Yep, that's right, he made the Emperor of the Holy Roman Emperor wait with his complete court in the middle of Bruges. When he did arrive, he was supposed to dismount and talk, therefore, to Charles with said deference. Wolsey did no such thing and stayed firmly in his saddle. And Charles meekly went along with it, because he needed Wolsey now. You really do have to give Wolsey his due. He understood the timeless and ineffable law that if you want to be treated like a prince, you need to behave like a prince. It is a lesson I have repeatedly failed to learn, despite seeing frequent demonstrations of the principle in action. Anyway, in November 1522 came a treaty which confirmed the death of the Treaty of Universal Peace. There was a bit of dithering going on. Wolsey and Henry were reluctant at this stage to throw themselves back into the European war, which was an expensive business. The Pope and Emperor would have to wait, with only minimal commitment made by the English for the year of 1522. But meanwhile... Charles promised to marry the king's daughter and heir, Princess Mary, 19 years his junior, at the reasonably tender age of three. When Wolsey got home from the office, he found his boss absolutely over the moon, Jim, at the deal that Wolsey had pulled off. But there was more. Emperor Charles was soon to bribe Wolsey with the prospect of becoming Pope when Leo X died in December 1521. And actually, this is an interesting incident, Interesting at least since some commentaries of Wolsey have suggested that he was motivated very significantly by a desire to become head of all the church. 
but it seems very clear that the only person really enthusiastic about this idea was in fact Henry. But the idea was pursued, although without enthusiasm or much hope. Wolsey, in fact, never took the time and trouble to get himself involved in curial politics and therefore build a faction and supporters that you'd absolutely need to get elected. This is one ambition, then, of which Wolsey is almost certainly innocent. Leo was instead replaced by Adrian VI. Adrian was Dutch. Now, I've been open in exposing the English xenophobia, but I hope I have also noted that really this is something in which the English were not alone. The Italians hated Adrian. Adrian outrageously agreed with reformers that the church might just be guilty of some excess. Adrian knew nothing of Rome and Italy, and so the Italians thought of him as a barbarian. Worse, Adrian seemed to disagree with the papal who cares about the poverty of Christ, let's spend billions on pretty pictures thing. Anyway, Adrian also became Pope at what might be described as a tricky time, if being Pope during the early years of the man who would create the greatest rip in the fabric of Christendom since the break with the Orthodox Church counts as tricky. He will be dead, though, within 18 months of becoming Pope, and it might have been considered for him a reasonable career move. Certainly, the epitaph on his tomb, voted incidentally by the College of Cardinals themselves, was, Here lies Adrian VI, whose greatest misfortune was that he became Pope. Adrian would quickly be replaced in 1523 by Clement VII, who will be very important to our story and about whom we will therefore come later and describe properly. Francis, meanwhile, would have been unsurprised at the alliance of English Empire and Pope and perfectly aware of what was going on. He would come up with a good old traditional French plan. So I am visualising one evening, after a busy day hunting and despoiling as many of Claude's household ladies as possible, Francis sitting in his royal shed, wondering what to do about the English. Suddenly, a thought hits him, and he calls for a torch, descends to the lowest vault of the castle, opens an old dusty tome. It's called Les Rosbif. The book would probably have had two pieces of advice. Number one, ignore them and they'll probably run out of money and go away. And number two, pick up the phone to the Scots. I visualise the dust flying up from the old tome as Francis slams it shut, exclaims Sacre Bleu, adjusts his codpiece with satisfaction and sets off to find John Stuart, the Duke of Albany. Now, the whole Scottish situation is so thoroughly complicated that I'm going to have to massively summarise. So forgive me, that certain amount of mangling which inevitably accompanies such summarising. Essentially, as you know, Margaret Tudor, James IV's widow, is queen in Scotland, and the king, James V, is a minor, born in 1512. We have a struggle over the next decade or so between Margaret Tudor and John Stuart, Duke of Albany, and a man called the Earl of Angus. The last name Angus is the young witless fool we've heard about before, and the man that Margaret rather madly married, guilty, it seems, of the Tudor flaw, not good at controlling her passions. As for Albany, a certain amount of what followed rested on the very pro-Frenchness of the man. He's in his thirties at this time, and has spent a lifetime in the service of the French king and court, particularly military service. And he's therefore assumed by the Scots and the English in every situation to be nothing more than a representative of the French king, and certainly he loved France. He's also a very passionate bloke as well, 
So the Earl of Surrey reported home that Albany's passion was something of a boon if you happened to sell hats in Edinburgh. According to Surrey, he was so passionate that he be apart from his familiars. If he doth hear anything contrarious to his mind and pleasure, his accustomed manner is to take his bonnet suddenly off his head and to throw it on the fire, so that no man dare take it out but let it burn. My Lord Dacre doth affirm that at his last being in Scotland he did burn a dozen after that manner. Presumably, wherever he went, Albany was followed by a small cloud of ambulance-chasing hatters, shouting insults in the hope he'd trigger a bit of a hat-burning and the chance for a resale. Anyway, what emerges is a period of strife between various factions on the Scottish Regency Council, with England and France sticking their noses in periodically and sort of stirring things up. Margaret and Angus pretty soon fall out, on account of the fact that Angus sets up shop with his fancy woman and spends all of Margaret's money doing it. Margaret spends much of her time therefore penniless and desperately trying to see her son, James V, and maintain her political influence. But at the moment, she's basically seen as an advocate of England, which of course is never terribly popular in Scotland. Now you might wonder why a history of England should be worried by all of this. And there are two reasons really. One is the obvious thing that Henry and his council are worried about the dagger in the back scenario. And with justice, given that this is exactly what had happened in 1513 and frequently before, of course, as you'll know. And so they intervene in Scotland. They bankroll Angus with a thousand quid a year at one stage, for example, and Mary forced Margaret into accommodation with him for a while, although that doesn't last very long. But secondly, the English council are very aware that until Henry has a nice long list of sons, which is proving frustratingly tricky, the Scottish are next in line for the English throne. The last pregnancy, by the way, that we can be sure about for Catherine ended late in 1518, and so by 1521 she's 36, and there's a bit of quiet panicking going on at court. Anyway, all of this is essentially an excuse to tell you about Albany and his approach to hats. In 1518, Albany had been kept in France by the Anglo-French friendship by Francis I. And so, conversely, in 1521, as relationships headed towards war, Francis had turned to Albany, and like a bacillus into the British body politic, he injected him back into Scotland. And on the 28th of December in Edinburgh, Albany declared friendship with France and a resumption of the old alliance against England. While Henry was worrying about Scotland and girding his loins for war, he also had another crisis to deal with. This crisis concerning the greatest man of his realm, the Duke of Buckingham. Now you might remember the marriage of Catherine of Aragon and Arthur, King of the Britons, well, Prince of Wales. You might remember that the Duke of Buckingham had worn a robe that cost 1,500 quid, a sum of money that would have maintained 700 labourers and their families for a year. Buckingham was enormously rich, as you might guess from that. With an income of over 5,000 quid a year, he was right at the top of the tree, only Wolsey could now surpass him. Buckingham was not a feckless idiot by any means, despite his ostentation. When he'd arrived in his lands that he'd inherited from wardship, they were in something of a mess, which would be common for wardships. He ruthlessly put things in order. I say ruthlessly because essentially he took his tenants to court, 128 of them, and his lawyer was not called Ruth. This was his way of putting pressure on them to increase rents, gain proper recognition of his lordships and rights. 
Meanwhile, he also went for the enclosure of common lands as hard as he could, in the face of the worries of men like Thomas More and Wolsey, who saw the change away from traditional practice as harmful and painful, who heard the cries of pain from the villagers and villages. In the Welsh marcher lordships that still dominated the borders, the Welsh and English tenants fought back tooth and nail, and in many places became so lawless and hostile to Buckingham that he could not travel without a substantial escort. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So I'm not saying that he was just a blithering idiot. It was just that he was an absolute product of his class. Family and lineage was, of course, everything, and he was mighty proud of the fact that he had royal blood in his veins, which actually, under Henry, was probably something to keep under your bonnet. But look, he loved the fact that he was descended from Edward III. It meant that while the king's progeny issue continued, he was very much a contender for the succession. Ostentation, pomposity and display, the recognition of his status, were super important to him, hence the wearing of the 1,500-quid robe. He started a magnificent new castle in Gloucestershire, Thornbury, which you can now stay in since it's a hotel, but it'll cost you a bob or two. He restored and decorated his house in London, decorating it with portcullises and roses, the symbols of both Beaufort and Yorkist, from whom he was descended. Buckingham was a product of his class in another way. He couldn't stand oiks who didn't know their place. I intend this as no criticism. That was the great chain of being after all, and he was far from being alone in his view. Buckingham, bombastic, larger than life, went a bit further though, and he accused Wolsey of trying to destroy the nobility. And you can understand to some degree why he should have taken up such an extreme position. In 1519, along with the purge of Henry's young bucks we'd heard about recently, Wolsey had indeed been having a hack at the magnates, chasing them through the courts of chancery to stamp out enclosure and punish the practices of livery and maintenance. He was a good deal more effective at the latter, livery and maintenance, than the former, it must be said. Holding back European-wide economic and social changes was tricky from England's chancery courts. But Wolsey was in no way trying to crush the magnate class. And in fact, the initiatives of 1519, as we've said, ran largely into the sand over the time. But nonetheless, it's not totally unreasonable for Buckingham to feel a little threatened by the oik from Ipswich, and Wolsey's daily display of power clearly turned his stomach. There's a delightfully petty occasion when Buckingham is holding a bowl of water for the king to wash his hands, and on taking it away, manages to, oops, accidentally on purpose, tip it all over Wolsey's foot. But truthfully, Buckingham was pretty good at winding up most people, to be honest. The other two most powerful magnates at court, the Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk, they both hated him and were to have far more to do with the spot of bother coming Buckingham's way than did Wolsey, in fact. In fact, Wolsey himself had even told Buckingham to be more circumspect in his behaviour. Henry wasn't terribly keen either, to be honest. Buckingham didn't hide his light under a bushel, he was not shy in retiring, and he'd really annoyed Henry when he'd once visited him, because Henry found a member of the royal household wearing the Buckingham livery badge. Henry went level two ballistic. 
It seems petty now, but these things were important symbols then, suggesting that the man's allegiance was to Buckingham first, to the king second. Buckingham was therefore never close to the centre of political power, never trusted by Henry. In April 1521 then, Buckingham set off to London to answer a summons from the king. He had no worries on his mind, no shadows of concern. He'd been redesigning his gardens, and he treated the journey just like any other. But when he reached Windsor, he began to realise that something was up, something was wrong. Armed men had appeared, and while he ignored them for a while, they didn't go away. Even on his grand, gilded, ducal barge, proceeding downriver to Westminster, he was followed, and he was watched carefully all the way, and Buckingham began to panic. It proved to be the perfect time to panic, in the words of Woody. When they were near Westminster on the 16th, he was arrested on his barge and taken to the Tower. Buckingham had made a bit of a classic mistake in consulting a man who claimed to be able to foretell the future, and this particular future involved the death of the king. Envisaging the death of the king was treason. That's reasonably harsh, isn't it? Just thinking about a dead king was enough to have your genitals cut off and burned in front of you and your guts sliced open. I'd say that was harsh. Still, Buckingham had been reasonably undisciplined. He'd apparently got involved in a bit of chat with said soothsayer and reportedly discussed his plans to come into the king's presence and having upon him a secret knife so that when kneeling before the king he would have risen suddenly and stabbed him. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Buckingham had actually been planning to do any such thing. By the looks of things, he'd been indulging himself with the idea of soothsaying and a spot of daydreaming about a Stafford finally acquiring the throne just as his dad had done under Richard III. He'd also shot his mouth off, saying the Tudors were under a curse, and this was why Henry had no male heir. This is very interesting in the sense that it's an echo of the pressure under which Catherine and Henry would now be labouring. People were talking. It's 1521. Catherine hadn't been pregnant now for three years. But, well, fair dues. Buckingham had made no plans to raise rebellion, but he appears to have been thoroughly guilty of being a Burke, and a Burke using the language of treason at that. There's something unbalanced about Buckingham. In October 1520, he'd announced a sudden intention to go to Jerusalem. He told his Chancellor that he had been such a sinner, he was sure that he lacked grace. And it was this Burkedom that brought his life into danger. Henry was taking a close personal interest, and Henry was beginning to show signs of the paranoia that would characterise his later reign. There's a really rather extraordinary note that he wrote to Wolsey, written in Henry's own hand from about this time. Make good watch on the Duke of Suffolk, on the Duke of Buckingham, on my Lord of Northumberland, on my Lord Derby, on my Lord of Wiltshire, and on others which you think suspect. Well, this seems most unlike the virtuous prince, lover of the nobility, player of games with noble minions. We might suspect, with no evidence really to prove it, that Wolsey was continuing to push buttons, to raise suspicions in the king's mind against those blasted minions that got in Wolsey's way so much. Buckingham was put on trial, put on trial in front of his peers in the court of the Lord High Steward. The Lord High Steward happened to be the Duke of Norfolk, who, as it happens, stood to profit mightily from any confiscation of Buckingham's estates, since he might well expect to be a recipient of what might be loosely termed the goodies. At his side were the Duke of Suffolk and the Marquis of Dorset, both also likely to profit from the odd handout. I'm not suggesting any jiggery, though, nor indeed am I suggesting any pokery. None was necessary. It was a slam dunk. I am put in mind of Henry V and the Earl of Cambridge, 
almost certainly not guilty of plotting to take the throne, but almost impossible not to have executed. For his part, Buckingham played the part of the haughty duke right to the end. The Duke of Norfolk therefore turned the edge of the axe towards him to signify the sentence of death. Buckingham made no effort to plead his way out of it to express regret. He just complained that a duke was too grand to have his guts opened. The sentence was duly reduced to beheading. And so, another long-distance possible rival to the Tudor throne went to his death. The manner of his execution was unsettling, though. A straw in the wind that maybe bluff King Hal, the virtuous Renaissance prince, was becoming a little less popular, what with his wars and spending and all that. So, imagine yourself as a traitor being dragged on your hurdle towards the gallows to be, I don't know, disemboweled or something. These days, we might expect a spot of sympathy, maybe a nice cup of tea, the odd protest placard or something like that. Back in the days of yore, it was an occasion for a bit of fun. This was a traitor against God's anointed king, after all. So it was open season, jeering, spitting, throwing of all sorts, that sort of thing. But when Buckingham was taken back to the tower for his execution, the crowds were silent. They were respectful. The Venetian ambassador wrote home that Buckingham's death was universally lamented by all of London. Our Italians had not the heart to see him die. Charles V himself was appalled at the news and appalled at the social politics of it all and he wondered that a butcher's cur has killed the finest buck in England. So, back to the world international then. By 1522, Henry was once more committed to war on the side of the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope, apparently in defence of Henry's crowning achievement, the Treaty of Universal Peace. Now, Henry was by and large keen on invading France, and so despite the glugging as the Treaty of Universal Peace sank beneath the waves, there were some compensations for the lad. Interestingly, Wolsey and Henry for once were not of the same mind in how to go about it. It's a small, early sign of discord between king and minister, no bigger than a man's hand. But the main problem was one of money, and therefore timing. Henry VII's plate and savings were now well and truly gone. Even the vast patrimony of land he had bequeathed to his son was unable to keep pace with the costs of modern warfare. The coffers, the coffers were bare. And until the coffers had been clothed in the hue of silver, there would be no mass invasion of France. And so Wolsey and Henry told their mates they'd have to wait. Henry and Wolsey were therefore forced to follow a reasonably well-worn path, the path trodden by many English kings of the past. Number one route was Milk London. 20,000 quid was wrung from London, and the king's purveyors descended like locusts. The way this worked was that London merchants were required to put all the barrels of wine and beer they possessed out on the street in front of their warehouses, and through the town would come the king's purveyors sweeping it all up for the army and offering a hmm, rubbish price in return. Fun times for London, not. On the back of that, the aged Duke of Norfolk saw his son, the Earl of Surrey, given a small force to go and make trouble in France in 1522 to keep things warm and coming along. It really was one of those rather feeble campaigns. For some reason, Brittany was chosen. Not sure why. There was a bit of burning and pillaging, and then Surrey arrived home. Not only was it all rather pointless strategically, no plans had been laid to defend the Scottish back door. So, 
Down from the heather came Albany with an army. But fortunately for Henry and England, the memory of Flodden was too fresh, and key Scottish lords such as the Gordons refused to cross the border. With England at his feet, poor old Albany was forced to accept a truce. He was not a happy bunny. As he retreated, the smell of burning bonnets drifted gently over the beauty of the border hills. But for 1523, which had been agreed with Charles to be the big year of mega-invasion, the year that must bring Francis finally to his knees, proper armies, proper objectives were required, which all meant proper money. It had never been cheap to make war in any age. The last 1.3 million words of even this humble podcast are littered with the grandest of kings, forced to demean themselves and ask their subjects for money with their begging bowl, or indulge in the political equivalent of holding their subjects up by their collective ankles and shaking them until their money fell out of their pockets. They are also littered with their surly subjects, refusing to be so shaken or demanding concessions. Hence, one of the major reasons for the existence and powers of Parliament. But war had begun to get rather more expensive. Armies were larger for one thing. It was necessary to buy specialist mercenaries these days. Long gone were the days when you could call in your knights with their horse, sword and hauberk. Remember the happy days of the likes of Henry I. Fighting battles we would contentedly describe as decisive. Romping among the fields and flowers of Normandy with just a few hundred knights. Happy, ha, simple days. Now you had the delights and costs of gunpowder and all the military technology of the artillery train. So the annual military budget was horrendous. Bear in mind that income at the end of Henry VII's reign had been in the region of £110,000, plus the king's lands. With the resumption of Scotland's old alliance and Albany and his bonnet burning, they realised that now £50,000 had to be put aside to deal with the potential danger from the Scots. So, with the extensive use of fingers, a bit of totting up then went on. The army was going to be 26,000 people strong, including 8,000 of the Landsknecht and 8,000 cavalry. So that's 34,000 folks then, and they were expected to get through a lot of food and drink. Just to take one example, it was expected to consume 882,000 gallons of beer a month. Now, I have really no idea what 882,000 gallons of beer looks like, though the thought of trying is a nice one but it's undeniably a big number. But that was not all. At the very same time, there was a navy to maintain. That was a sea army of 3,000 men, which itself would consume 600 oxen, 18,000 barrels of bish, and a further 17,640 gallons of ale by ek. This was going to cost a bob or two. Put aside for the fact that you have to pay all your students. Put it aside, I say. Provisions alone were going to cost £372,000 for a reasonably length campaign. Let us pause the narrative just for a moment. England's population may have been growing again, but was still considerably less than 3 million. France had a population of 14 million. Charles's empire, more than 30 million. That meant many more spondulics than Henry could muster, even bearing in mind the relatively centralised and coherent nature of the English kingdom. Now, let us bring back to our minds that which we had put aside. The fact that all those soldiers had to be paid, in the words of the killers, bring it back, bring it back. The whole shebang was not going to cost anything south of £800,000. 
After Henry had patted his purse and Wolsey had searched his breeches, they realised they could only rustle up £2.40 shillings and sixpence. So there was but one solution. Parliament must be called. We'll hear about the Parliament and the delightfully named Amicable Grant. It's not going to be amicable, and in fact, it might not even be a grant. So, not a great name then. We'll hear about Pavia, and Anne will arrive back at the English court. Let the good times roll. Have a spiffing week. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to check out Heather Tesco's TudorSummit.com. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.